You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. What a great song in light of everything that we're learning in Revelation right now and seeing that despite um, the, the world being filled with devils and antichrist that Christ continues to uh, reign supreme and that we are guarded and protected by him. Revelation chapter 14, uh, verse 1, I want to read to you our text for this morning. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. We have our notes available in our Google Drive folder. If you want to access those at a later time, we'll have those on the screen for you this morning as well. Um, again, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Revelation chapter 13 and what Scripture has to say about the threat of the Antichrist upon the church. And last week, we, we kind of stepped back and looked at not just chapter 13, but what Scripture says as a whole um, we kind of summarize those thoughts by saying that Christians have a responsibility to respond to current Antichrist, to prepare for future Antichrist, and to take comfort in knowing the Lamb will ultimately defeat the final Antichrist. So what Scripture tells us is that there's Antichrist right now, and there will continue to be Antichrist until Jesus comes back. And what we've seen, especially through Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the teaching that most likely there is to come one who will embody uh, what we anticipate and expect in the form of the Antichrist, the, the final Antichrist, the one who uh, will maybe have greater influence and greater power than previous Antichrists before him. Um, Christians need to be prepared for all of that. No matter what time you're living in, Scripture says there's Antichrist now, there will be Antichrist until Jesus comes back, and there will be one Antichrist potentially in the future right before Jesus returns. And so Christians need to be prepared for that. We saw the clear teaching, I think, of 2 Thessalonians 2, which is um, more clear than what we find in Revelation 13, that um, there's a time of restraint that we live in right now, a time where uh, God is holding back some of that evil. Um, that, that Satan and, 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 and his demons would love to do far more than what they're currently doing. Um, but Paul says that, hey, you don't have to worry about whether Jesus has come back or not yet because the church was kind of mired in some confusing theology that the day of the Lord had already happened. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. That, that time won't even happen until the time of restraint has been lifted, that, that there's something holding Satan and his forces back uh, for, for greater evil in the future. And, and Paul says that during that time of restraint, that's when people are, are, are getting saved. That's when the, the nations are no longer blinded and the gospel is going forth. And, and we're certainly experiencing that today, right? Like we hear stories of, of the church growing and thriving all around the globe. A time of restraint where even though Satan is walking about roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, he's being restrained in some of the deception and some of the work that he desires to do. 2 Thessalonians does tell us that there's coming a time where great rebellion will ensue, where that time of restraint will be lifted. 
Satan and the Antichrist will gather the forces who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected Jesus, and that's the key point in 2 Thessalonians 2, is that they don't deceive any Christians, right? That, that no Christians fall away from the faith or walk away from the faith. Church members may, churchgoers may during that time. They will certainly be susceptible to that deception that sets in. Because again, part of the purpose of the Antichrist rise is to really separate the universal church from the unbelievers. Right now, we live in a state where, man, you can, you can infiltrate a church and not be a Christian. You can attend church. You can give to the church. In some churches, you can serve within the church because you can hide yourself so well and appear like a Christian. Before Jesus comes back, there will be great separation. There will be people, if they're not a Christian, they will not want to be called a Christian, right? Revelation 13 says, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have a mark. We said probably not a literal mark. It's going to be difficult to buy and sell unless you give allegiance to the Antichrist. I mean, you're not going to want to label yourself a Christian unless you really are a Christian. That time will be very divisive. We need to be prepared for that time of rebellion. But we said lastly, we can be encouraged by that time of retribution that's to come. Man, when Jesus comes back, it will be swift. He will deal a decisive blow to the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, with his breath, he will defeat the greatest evil of all time, right? Jesus shows up and just breathes upon him, and he's destroyed. From an application standpoint last week, we said we need to gather as churches. We need to gather as Christians with other believers so that we hold on until that time when Jesus returns, and that we need to labor to know the truth, believe the truth, and practice truth before that time of, of deception comes. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it because there will be greater and greater false teachers to come that would seek to shift us from true teaching. That brings us to Revelation 14. We've already talked about the 144,000. Um, they're real similar to the, or it's real similar in discussion to chapter 7 in Revelation. I do believe it's the exact same group of people which we'll talk about. But we talked about the ceiling of the 144,000. Today we'll talk more about the song of the 144,000. Um, what are they singing about, um, and what does it mean for us as believers? From a summary sentence standpoint today, despite the plans of Satan and the Antichrist, the Lamb still stands victorious with his faithful army who celebrate the victory of their salvation and preservation. Man, what we see in these first five verses of chapter 14 is that, man, on the heels of what we just talked about in 13, that Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, man, despite all their best plans, we see the lamb standing upon this mountain victorious. And he's surrounded by his army of, of, of victory as well. And they are celebrating that victory, celebrating the victory of salvation and celebrating their victory of their preservation, that they have persevered to the end. For our kids, the Antichrist will fail and Jesus and Christians will be victorious. Man, that's what I want you to walk away from today as we look at this chapter, that, man, despite all the horrors we've talked about in chapter 13 with the Antichrist and the coming deception, Jesus wins and Christians make it to the end. All right? Just by way of introduction, um, what John does here in this chapter is he contrasts the, the demonstration of satanic powers in chapter 13 by giving us a vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion with his redeemed forces. And we'll talk more about what, what Mount Zion refers to in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, all right? Um, I already shared with you, I think this 144,000 group is most likely the same group sealed in Revelation chapter 7. So let's jump back over there just briefly to read that passage again. 
Um, it says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. You know, kind of that time of restraint that we just talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2. We talked about this in Revelation 7, that God is withholding his punishment as well so that all 144,000 can be sealed. It says, no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It goes off to list the tribes of Israel and the sealing of those individuals. I think what we also learn from this passage is that God always has faithful people, no matter how wicked the world may become. Man, no matter how wicked it gets, no matter how evil it gets, no matter how depraved the world gets, God always has his faithful people in place. And Elijah had to learn that lesson, right? Like Elijah felt isolated, felt like he was the only one who loved God. He's the only one who was worshiping Yahweh. And God's like, I got a whole remnant of Israelites that you just don't realize that are not worshiping Baal, right? God always has his faithful people in place, no matter how wicked the world may become. We talked already in in Revelation 7, so we won't spend too much time on this, but I do think that number is symbolic. Um, And so while the Jehovah's Witness believe that really a literal 144,000 get to enjoy heaven for eternity and only 144,000, that everybody else is kind of stuck in a a second-rate eternity on earth, I believe this number is symbolic. Um, It's symbolic because all the numbers are symbolic in, in Revelation, right? Like, Jesus doesn't have uh, seven eyes, right? Like it's communicating the fact that Jesus sees everything and knows everything, right? So we've talked about numbers being symbolic. We've talked about 144,000 being symbolic. I think you can easily take an understanding of Israel and the Gentiles being merged together as one people of God when you see 12 disciples and 12 apostles, right? The 12 and the 12 making 144 the term or the number 1,000 in Scripture is used to, uh, to number a multitude. So you're basically saying uh, a perfect cohesion of, of Jew and Gentile coming together to be the people of God multiplied times 1,000 gives you a great, perfect multitude of people, right? So what we're saying, what we've been seeing in Revelation is this 144,000 is a picture of all of God's people for all time, not a specific group of super saints at the end of time. This is all of God's people for all time, okay? Because that number, I think, is clearly symbolic in Scripture. Um, And and another passage to kind of uh, suggest that, because, again, we're talking about these people having what? um, Verse 1 says, the name of Jesus, the name of the Father written on their foreheads. If you jump ahead to Revelation 22... Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, this is talking about, this is talking about forever. This is talking about eternity. This is talking about all of us gathered with Jesus Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, right? Like this isn't just a group of people who live until Jesus comes back. This is, this is all of God's servants having the name of God upon their foreheads. 
again, symbolically, but what's being talked about there is, is applied to all of God's people. And so I think that alludes to Revelation 14, helping us see that this number also includes all of God's people. All right, the mark in chapter 13 of the beast and the seal of God in chapter 14, both of these are seen as identification with the names of their leaders. In uh, the second half of chapter 14, so we see God's name written on the, uh, the name of the, or the forehead of the saints. If you skip down to verse nine of chapter 14, another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Again, we're not talking about credit cards. We're not talking about microscopic chips that go into your hand. We're talking about identification with Satan and the Antichrist right? You give your allegiance to him. That's what it means to have the mark of the beast, right? Like not accidentally starting to use some super technology that comes later in life. It's aligning yourself with the antichrist movement that I don't want, I don't want any part of Jesus, right? I don't find my security in Jesus, okay? The, the people standing on this mountain who have the name of God written on their foreheads, man, they find all their security in Jesus. How do we know that? Because it says they follow the lamb wherever he goes, Man, you lead me into a fiery furnace, that's where I'm going. You lead me into the den of lions, that's where I'm going, right? These guys follow Jesus wherever he takes their life. They are completely aligned with Christ, the Messiah, all right? Ultimately, John is showing us in this chapter that it's better to worship the lamb who redeems and rewards than the beast who deceives and destroys, Chapter 13 and 14 are kind of set up as two chapters for us to determine who are we going to follow? Who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the message of the beast or the message of the lamb? Who do we determine is worth following and giving our life to? Okay, so we'll continue to unpack that thought. Number one in our notes today, stand confidently because of your security. Stand confidently because of your security. When John sees this vision, it says, I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And John has seen everything in chapter 13 with the Antichrist. Then he looks upon Mount Zion and sees the lamb and his people standing confidently. These 144,000 have been sealed, Revelation says, right? Like they've been sealed. They can't be hurt by God's judgment, because they belong to him. They stand confidently on this mountain. For our kids, Jesus always takes care of Christians. He always takes care of Christians. Think about this back in Revelation 13. Who is it that calls forth the Antichrist and the false prophet? Do you remember? Who's kind of summoned them forth? It was the dragon, right? The dragon who we've identified as Satan says, uh, let's see here, at the, end of verse, at the end of chapter 12, the dragon who, remember, was attacking the woman. Um, he couldn't kill the Messiah. We talked about all that at Christmas time. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman. He went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right? 
And, and Satan begins to call forth these, these, these two figures that are going to serve his purposes, right? So what I want you to see, first of all, is that the beasts take their position on the sand, but the lamb stands on the mountain. The lamb stands on the mountain. Man, look at the foundations of these two uh, leaders. If we're comparing and contrasting, who do we follow? Man, one is standing on the sands of the seashore. One is standing on the solid rock of a mountain. And hopefully if you, if you hear that long enough, you start to remember the parable of Jesus, right? Man, where do I want my house to be? Do I want my house on the sand or do I want it on the rock, right? When things come and begin to wash away at that foundation, which one stands? Psalm 125 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from his time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Man, this, this is exactly what's happening in Revelation, right? Like, as the psalmist writes here, he's saying, man, I want to be on Mount Zion because it never gets moved. It abides forever. And he goes on to say the wicked are going to be led away by what? Evildoers. He's going to lead those crooked people away by even worse people. And that should conjure up the images of the Antichrist and the false prophet, deceiving and leading the evil away. Man, Mount Zion is where we want to be. One's foundation is passing away while one's will remain forever. Secondly, the beasts demonstrate temporary power and authority, but the lamb is enthroned eternally as king. The beasts demonstrate temporary power and authority, but the lamb is enthroned eternally as king. His salvation keeps us. Think about this. If we back up, the 144,000 were sealed before some of these judgments and before some of this stuff came when the time of restraint was lifted. What we find now at the end of the Antichrist movement, we still find all 144,000 standing there with Jesus. None of them are lost. None of them get deceived. None of them lose their salvation. None of them wander away. The true people that are sealed by the Holy Spirit, man, they survive till the end. They make it to the end. Maybe not with their physical lives, but with their spiritual lives, right? Like they don't turn to the Antichrist. They don't give their allegiance to the beast. They remain faithful. His salvation keeps us. The beast and all their best efforts fail. That term Zion is used 155 times in the Old Testament in reference to the city of God where the Messiah will reign forever. In Psalm chapter 2, this is a passage that we've seen John allude to in his writings in Revelation. Psalm chapter 2, it's a messianic psalm. Verse 1 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Man, that's, that's exactly what's happening in chapter 13, right? Antichrist, false prophet, the evil, they're plotting, but they're plotting in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's exactly what's happening in Revelation 13, right? Man, if you won't worship the image of the beast, we're gonna kill you. We're not gonna let you buy or sell or eat. We are gonna beat you in submission. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Man, there's so much similarity there as in Revelation 14. We haven't even gotten to the second half, but all those warnings about don't worship the Antichrist, don't take the mark of the beast, or else you're going to go up in torment and fire for all eternity. Man, that warning's contained there in Psalm chapter 2 as well. What's the threat to the evil? The fact that the king of God is sitting in Mount Zion on the throne, right? And that's what John sees. John, John looks and sees and he says, there's the lamb, there's Mount Zion, there's all of the church and all of God's people from the Old Testament with him as one people. Man, they stand victorious. They stand victorious on the mountain. The term Mount Zion is often used in scripture in reference to a preserved remnant, the people that God saves. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 31. These are all passages that are going to um, flow out of the history of Israel and how they were being attacked and how God promises to, to save and, and allow those that follow him to survive. It says, uh, verse 30 of 2 Kings 19, The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Mount Zion, a picture of a preserved remnant. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Man, God's protective place is Zion, right? That's where he rules and that's where he reigns and that's where we're pictured as being. Joel chapter 2 verse 30 Here's another passage where we see Mount Zion being attached to a remnant that God preserves and protects. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You say, okay, that's great. Um, some Old Testament passages about God saving Israel and preserving Israel. I mean, that stuff already happened. That's already been fulfilled. And that's absolutely true. God fulfilled a lot of that stuff in the Old Testament. But we've talked about the double fulfillment picture where, where God would prophesy things in the Old Testament for those people. They would oftentimes see some immediate fulfillment 
but it oftentimes alluded to things in the future where even greater fulfillment would come. Let me show you these passages that I just read in context in the New Testament of how they're being fulfilled even today. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, verse 16. Paul or uh, Peter begins to quote from the passage in Joel that I just read. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The very next verse in Joel is the passage where we're talking about being gathered to Mount Zion. Peter says, man, that passage is happening right now, day of Pentecost. God is moving and working and he is calling people to salvation. This is where the church really takes off and begins in the New Testament context. You skip into Acts chapter 13, verse 33. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled in us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here, here there's the allusion to, to the Psalm 2 passage where, where Jesus has been enthroned as the king on Mount Zion and the nations are about to be destroyed by him. That's happening now. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Again, quoting from that Psalm 2 passage. Why am I giving you this? Because I don't want you to think that Revelation 14 is something in the distant future. That's happening right now. God is enthroned on Mount Zion right now, and he is gathering his people to himself. And when the time comes, what we've already seen, when that last martyr dies, man, Jesus is coming in all of his fury to bring justice upon the earth and to usher us into eternity forever. Man, we can look forward to this in anticipation because it's already starting to happen around us. That's what John sees in Revelation 14. He sees the lamb and the church standing confidently on Mount Zion. We're in that group. Number two, not only are they standing, they are singing. They are singing loudly because of their victory. We too can sing because of our victory, because we're a part of this group. He sees them standing there. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. For our kids, as Christians, we sing because Jesus wins. Number one, while unbelievers are marked, believers are bought. Who are these people that are singing this song? We know the number, 
But the description of the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed from the earth. They've been redeemed from the earth. This is who God has purchased through the blood of the lamb to be his. Jesus intentionally sets out to purchase his own. He seals us with the assurance of his name and marks himself with our names. Look at this. We talked about Revelation 13. What does the beast do? The beast says, man, take this mark and worship the image of the beast, right? The Antichrist says, worship me, give your allegiance to me. He deceives them by doing tricks and wonders and signs. Man, Jesus goes after his people. We've already seen in a couple of passages in Revelation where God promises this type of sealing or this new name. In Revelation 2.17, he's talking to the uh, church at Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right? Then we go to Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. We've already seen in Revelation 7, 2 through 3, where where God says, man, seal those 144,000 with my name. Put it on their forehead. Seal them up. The difference between the marking and the sealing, both of them communicate ownership. The sealing aspect represents protection, though. I mean, the Antichrist never promises to protect his followers. He never promises that. He says, mark them, mark them so they can buy and sell and eat and stuff. They belong to me. But man, he never promises to protect them. God talks about putting our name or his name upon us. But you know what he else does? You know what else he does? He says in scripture that he takes our names and puts them on his hand. Look in um, Isaiah 49. I mean, this was what separates him from the Antichrist. Because he's all about us, and the Antichrist is all about himself. Man, God's working for our good, and by working for our good, he gets the glory for it. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Isaiah even said, even these may forget... Even these may forget. God says, I will not forget you, though. So God pitches this idea. He says, can a nursing mom forget the, the, the child that she raised? Like, could there ever be a day where, where, where they could actually forget that? I mean, God says, you know, that's actually possible. Like, like there's scenarios where, where somebody could forget their child. And we know that there's diseases that set in that can, that can rob somebody of their mind. So God says, even the, the unfathomable idea that a, that, a, that a mom could forget her own child that she nursed, he says, even, even beyond that, I'm incapable of forgetting you. Behold, verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Man, I don't want the mark of the beast. Right? Like, I want to be sealed with God's name. Why? Because he's taking my name and sealing it on his hand as well. Man, ownership of me, protection for me as well, though. That's what makes him different than the Antichrist. Antichrist is about his glory and, and, and doing whatever it takes and has no concern for the good of the people following him. Man, God says it's all about my glory, 
but I'm going to include you in that plan, and I'm going to work good things for you constantly. You're going to be a joint heir with me. Unbelievers are marked. Believers are bought. Number two, while believers are unable to buy and sell, unbelievers are unable to sing. Man, we, we think in terms of Revelation 13 because we've heard it constantly. Man, as a Christian, like if you don't take that mark of the beast, you can't buy and sell and eat. We talk a lot about the mark of the beast, right? And I've told you, man, why the, why the mark of God doesn't get the same publicity as the mark of the beast, I have no idea why. Because it's there just as much as the mark of the beast, right? It's right after the mark of the beast. We're talking about the name of God, the mark of God on our foreheads. Nobody speculates as to what that is. It doesn't get near the pub as the mark of the beast does. Nor does what an unbeliever is incapable of doing during that time, right? We talk a lot about, man, that's going to be hard if you're, during, if you're here during that time. You may not be able to buy and sell and eat without that mark. And we talk about the tragedy of that. The greater tragedy is that the passage here says, man, you can't even sing this song because you don't get it, right? This is the song of the redeemed praising God for salvation. And if you're not in this group, man, you can't even sing this song. You can't even learn this song because you don't understand the experience that this song portrays. They are unable to learn the song because they've not experienced the truths of the song. One commentator said, the experience of and participation in God's salvation gives us a special inner appreciation of his goodness, greatness, and grace. Another commentator said, only those who uh, pay a price of faithful endurance are equipped by experience to give voice to the subsequent anthem of victory. You read in the book of Psalms, uh, let's read a couple of these just real quick. Psalm chapter 40. And the authors of, of the book of Psalms, they are writing new songs based on their experiences with God, like new experiences. Like I need to proclaim who God is because I've experienced him in a new way. Psalm chapter 40, a Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Verse three, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David says, man, I had an experience with God and it's, le it's leading me to write this song to communicate his goodness, a new song because of this new experience. In Psalm chapter 96, Verse one, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalmist is saying, man, we can sing about this constantly because it's not just about the salvation of yesterday. It's the salvation of every single day where God continues to work good for me leading up to his return. I can write a new song every day about how God's been good to me and how God has shown mercy and grace to me. It's not just about the day that I got saved when I was five years old and I crossed from death to life when I went from darkness to light. And he's been saving me every single day, working good in my life that I could sing about and tell others about. That's what the psalmist says. And we can make new songs up all the time because of God's experiences with us. Psalm chapter 98, verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. This idea of new songs. Psalm 144, the last one we'll look at. There's a bunch of times in the book of Psalms this is mentioned, this idea of a new song. 
Psalm 144, verse 5. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Psalmist is crying out for salvation from people that lie. We see, we see in the book of Revelation, that's the Antichrist, that's deception. Verse nine, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. David writing new songs because he's being delivered from liars. And we take comfort by being able to sing. And really what's being communicated here is you can take my comfort. You can take my ability to buy and sell. I will not take that mark, but I will still sing. And as I was studying this, I immediately thought about Paul and Silas being in that jail where like all their comfort has been taken from them and they are singing praises to God in jail. And everybody's just confused as to how do you still have a song left in you? Right, like we've taken everything from you and yet you still have a song inside of you. That's the picture here on this Mount Zion. You can take everything from the believer. You can take all of his comfort, all of his ability to buy and sell. You can, you can kill him for not worshiping the beast. He's still got reason to sing. And you can give all those things to an unbeliever and they still have no reason to sing. They don't understand. They don't get God the way that a believer does. They haven't experienced him that way. We sing in the midst of trouble to remind ourselves of the truths we knew. We know. Uh, Revelation 15 is probably the song that they're singing in chapter 14. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We sing loudly because of our victory. Now, I'm just going to tell you, you may not be the type of person who feels like they can sing well. And so even in, in moments like this morning, you may not be singing loudly. But if, if you can't hear a mighty fortress is our God and then not do something inside of you, like you probably need to step back and say, what's going on in my heart for me not to connect with the lyrics of this song, right? Like that is a song of victory that I would expect an unbeliever would say, and these words are confusing and I don't understand why we're singing this song. But I mean, for a believer, like we see that stuff and we say, man, this could not be more true. Man, and my joy is completely wrapped up in the truth that this song is proclaiming. We stand confidently, we sing loudly. Number three, we separate thoroughly because of our identity. We separate thoroughly because of our identity. For our kids, Christians are supposed to live very different from unbelievers. This group is different than those who follow the beast in chapter 13, right? They have the Father's name written on their foreheads, not the mark of the beast. They sing a song that the unbelievers can't even learn. Verse four, what else do we know about these people? They're redeemed, they've been bought. So while the, while the believer can't buy anything, Jesus is certainly buying things at this time. He has redeemed these people Verse four, it's these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. 
and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I want you to see three things about these people, and we'll wrap up. Number one, believers are pure in their worship towards the Lamb. They are pure in their worship towards the Lamb. The description here uses the term virgin. It's implying sexual purity because all throughout the Old Testament, the picture of the spiritually faithful are those who do not commit spiritual adultery. Right? So some people get mixed up into this and think that the 144,000 are all men and they're all single men and they've, they've, never, they've never been with a woman before. Like that's, that's a completely inaccurate way to interpret this passage. Right? Like, like this is all men and all women and we take the Old Testament picture of spiritual faithfulness. And when, when Israel was unfaithful, it was pictured as adultery. It's pictured as them going off and running after foreign gods like a spouse would run after another woman or another man. Spiritual adultery was what's pictured in the Old Testament when Israel would turn their attention to false gods. Believers are pure in their worship towards the Lamb. They don't, they don't wander or give their allegiance to other things. Scripture also goes the positive side and, and calls us a pure bride waiting for our groom. Right? In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, God says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here, as Paul writes, he's communicating, man, you're betrothed to Jesus. And when you start to wander from a devotion to Jesus, you're like like an engaged individual who wanders away from their devotion to their, their coming spouse. Ephesians chapter 5 is another passage that, that uses the, the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage to illustrate our faithfulness to Christ. In Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Believers are pure as they wait for their king to come back. We don't give our devotion to other things. We, we, we remain um, with our, our allegiance to Christ, pure in our worship towards the Lamb. And on a side note, I would say that very much has a lot to do with physical purity as well, right? Like, it can't be... Spiritual purity isn't completely uh, separated from physical purity, right? Like it means far more than just physical purity. But man, it certainly encompasses that, right? Like we can't, be, we can't be aligned with Christ if we're also running around in a way where we're being physically impure in our relationships with each other. Man, they go together. They go together. There's certainly a lot more than the physical purity aspect to it, but it certainly is encompassed in that. Number two, believers are dedicated in their obedience to the Lamb. They're dedicated in their obedience to the Lamb. Think back to what we said about the unbelievers in Revelation 13. What is it that gets them to start following the Antichrist? 
right? It's, it's, the, it's the signs, it's the wonders, it's the tricks, it's the, it's the entertainment. It's something that appeals to them that says, you know what? Let's, let's go over there and, and follow that thing. Let's give our allegiance to that. Unbelievers follow the Antichrist because he temporarily impresses them. Believers follow the Lamb because he has eternally gripped them. I came up with that on my own. That's not a quote from a commentator. So let me say that again for you. (laughs) So somebody can write that down and quote me at a future time. Unbelievers follow the Antichrist because he temporarily impresses them. Believers follow the Lamb because he has eternally gripped them. Believers aren't concerned about the comfort of the journey to eternity, right? That's why the martyrs can sit there and can worship God despite the fact that, man, they got led into their death, right? Their devotion to Jesus got them killed on earth and they are standing before the throne worshiping God and giving him all the praise and glory for it. You know why? Because what the book of Hebrews says is, man, we had a, a, a longer vision than comfort here, right? Like guys like Abraham, they were thinking to the eternal city, not just settling down in the promised land, right? Like it's not about the comfort of this journey. It's the end destination that makes all of it worth it. Man, these people that follow the Antichrist, man, the newest trick comes into town and they're, they're, they're doing some things and throwing some things around and, and making some, some impressive things happen. And everybody's just attracted to that and drawn to that. Man, the lamb followers have been eternally gripped by Jesus to where, man, you can stop impressing me. You can stop, stop working things in a way that provide comfort to me. Man, I can be on the side of the road with, uh, without the ability to eat and drink because I don't have the mark of the beast. I'm still gonna follow you wherever you go. That's what these people do. That's what the description of the church is. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, even if it costs them their lives. They're dedicated to their obedience to the Lamb. Number three, they are truthful as a reflection of the Lamb. They're truthful as a reflection of the Lamb. Whereas the Antichrist is defined by his deceit, believers are defined by the truth. Complete truthfulness at all times. No deceit is found in them because they reflect their master's character. Isaiah 53, 9, a messianic passage, talks about there being no deceit in Jesus' mouth. You read in Zephaniah chapter 3, those who were left in Israel, that refuge, that, that remnant, that, that, that preserved group, they shall, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. I mean, Zephaniah says, just like Jesus, there's no lies, no deceit in his mouth. Those that follow him, those that are saved by him, that becomes what characterizes them as well. As we follow him, we become like him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He says, This is the example that you're to follow. Christ left this example for us. No deceit was found in his mouth. The the questions you may not have gotten to, what's the temptation or 
What's the promise that's given to us when we're tempted to not be truthful and to be either dishonest or flat out lying about a situation? I mean, the two things that I wrote down is that we believe this lie that it either protects others to not be truthful or it protects ourselves. That's usually the temptation for why we would seek to be dishonest, not truthful, or blatantly lie about a situation. Because we want to protect ourselves, probably primarily. But then other times we fail to be truthful to others because in our minds we believe, man, they might get their feelings hurt if I'm truthful in this situation. Right? Like I want to protect them so I'm not going to be fully honest. I'm not going to be truthful um, in order to protect them. Some examples of this in in my life recently. Um, We set up last Wednesday night accountability group-wise because we wanted there to be some open and honest discussion, some truthful discussion about how things are going in our accountability groups and what changes maybe need to occur so those can be more fruitful, more productive. Man, and and we wanted to do it to where we, we broke up into accountability groups so that honest, open discussion could happen, so that truthfulness could come out. That's one example. In our accountability groups, if we can't be truthful there, man, we're probably not being truthful in a lot of other areas of our life, right? And it's easy to, we're not saying that we're necessarily lying in our accountability groups, but to withhold information, right? To not share within our accountability groups is a sign of not being truthful because that's where we ought to be able to be as open and as honest as possible. And those, those, that's a work in progress all the time. Right? Like our accountability groups are always going to be a work in progress. Man, that's the goal for that to be a place of safe haven, a place of truth. An example for me where I've been evaluating what I'm studying and wanting to make sure that I'm truthful. Um, I had a staff member come to me recently and express a desire for leadership um, at the school. And the quick, simple answer to that person was, don't have any open positions right? Like we don't have to talk about whether you're qualified or not for this. Don't have any open positions. But I kind of got, I got convicted about it because that person left believing, right? Not my intent, but they left believing if there were ever an open position for leadership, I would be considered for that spot. The truth is they will not, right? Like there's other factors at play, even if there was an open position. So my intent this week now is to reach back out to that person and say, look, this is where you fall short of being qualified for leadership. The easy answer is we don't have any positions. I don't have to hurt your feelings. But then I got to thinking, what happens when a position opens and I put somebody else in that position? Now the feelings will really be hurt because my impression was I'll be elevated here. So I've crafted an email that I'm going to sit down and send and then openly discuss with that person to let them know, here's the areas you need to grow in. It's going to be a hard conversation, potentially. It's the right thing to do. It's the truthful thing to do. Because for me to let that person walk away and leave and think one thing when I know something else is true, man, I want to reveal that to that person. Um, Man, sometimes we're called to try to identify truth in a situation where it's not always clear. I had another situation this week where where I had a parent and a teacher that were really going at it. Um, It was over whether or not the teacher had um, done something to their student. Parent believed one thing, teacher believed the the total opposite had occurred, right? But it was also a situation where, man, this person has feelings and perceives something about that situation that has now become true for them. And so we tried to work through that, and I tried to express to the teacher, I said, look, you arguing about what actually happened and what didn't happen is not what's important here. That student is imposing back on the situation their feelings. Man, they feel like you did this. And so now they're remembering that situation in a way I don't think they're intentionally lying about it. 
So we, we talked through like how to get to a, a truthful understanding of the situation, but ultimately, how do we get healing in this situation? Man, what do we need to do to fix this situation? Even if I didn't intend to hurt you, even if I didn't mean to hurt you, even if I was oblivious that I was hurting your child, I told the teacher, I said, we're gonna sit down and ask the parent, what do we need to do to fix this, right? Like, it's not about me trying to argue and convince that I didn't try to do this and I didn't do this. Your, your student feels like I did. How do we fix it, right? Um, man, I also talk to my students all the time about how it's important to, to reveal truth when somebody else is in danger, right? As, as we're going to have more discussion about this with our kids in our family worship time this week. And our kids need to know that sometimes it's not tattling to come forward and say, hey, this is happening, and this is what's true, and how do we get this fixed? Right? There's all this controversy surrounding these individuals um, with the, the USA Gymnastics team and the abuse that was taking place, coaches and others that kind of knew some of this stuff was happening and did nothing to, do, to stop it. Man, that is not an environment of truth. Scripture describes believers as creating environments of truth, right? Not withholding information, not uh, uh, distorting information under the guise of trying to protect ourselves or trying to protect others. Man, we pursue truth because that's what describes us. That's what's supposed to describe us. In the end, and this is important, in the end, morally impure people and liars are excluded from God's kingdom. We'll get to it, but in Revelation 21 and in Revelation 22, the people that are on the outside looking in are liars, deceivers, lovers of falsehood. In the end, it's the people who love truth who stand. Let me read this one passage and we're done. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who's going to be on Mount Zion, basically? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own heart or hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Man, you see the element of truth attached in there. Two application points. Are there any attempts at immorality through unhealthy relationships in my life that need to be confessed and changed? You know why I say this? Because more and more I'm realizing that people that I'm around like, are falling into to matters of divorce because of, of immoral relationships that happen. And far be it from me for us not to at least draw that out if possible, to have you confess that, to see that, to repent of that. Man, I've got two staff members right now that are going through a divorce and just wrecking their families because of unhealthy relationships that these individuals sought outside of the marriage. Man, I also know for our kids, man, all the time we hear about people who, who, who have yet to get married, come together, and, and in an unhealthy way, one of them, uh, you know, the girl ends up pregnant. Man, unhealthy relationships need to be called out, confessed, repented of, and turned from before that mistake happens where it's, it's, it's not really fixable without a lot of people being hurt. Man, if there's any attempts at immorality right now in your life, whether that's through, whether that's through a real person, whether that's through a computer, man, whatever that looks like, get out of it now while there's still a chance to get out of it. Number two, are there any failures of honesty in my life that need to be confessed and changed? I shared one with you. I got to communicate with a staff member this week that, hey, there's some things that need to change about you for me to consider you for leadership. I don't want you to believe something that's not true, that I would consider you for this if we had an open spot. I feel like I was being dishonest. Is there anything in your life, you maybe haven't told a blatant lie 
Is there anything in your life that you say, you know what, I haven't been fully truthful about this. I need to fix that this week. For our family worship questions, why is telling the truth so important? And what are some examples of being untruthful that I need to avoid? I think these are both good discussion questions for our kids as they learn more why truth is so important and how to tell the truth. All right. Um, I want to close today um, by having the time to pray over Chris. Um, Somebody ask Chris to go go ahead and come down. So Chris is heading back to Uganda today. Um, Been home for a while now. I mean, grab a seat right there. Um, been able to see a lot of family and friends, and um, I know in talking with him, and this is a sign of, of a guy who's ready to follow the lamb wherever he leads him, because for me to have spent a year in Uganda and then to come home, like, I would probably be tempted to just stay, right? Like, man, that was great, but man, I love being back in the comforts of this country, but every time I've talked to Chris since he's been home, it's like, man, I can't wait to get back, right? I can't wait to get back, Man, that's a sign of somebody who's truly been called to do what he's doing right now. And it's certainly a, a great example to us of one who said, you know what, I'll follow the lamb wherever he takes me, right? Like if it takes me away from family and friends, puts me on the other side of the world, that's where I'm gonna go to make sure that I communicate truth in a place where there's a lot of lies and deception. Like you, you don't talk to Chris too long before he relays to you, man, the biggest issue in Uganda is not poverty, right? It's, it's the false teachers that distort the gospel. Chris isn't there to fix the poverty problem. He's there to fix the, the lying problem, that the gospel is being distorted, right? And Chris is there to help fix that. So we want to pray over Chris as he gets ready to step out once again, both for his health, for his travel mercies today, um, getting acclimated back over there, and then the the ministry that God has before him uh, over the next year um, as he communicates truth to these students and to the community around him. So I'm going to invite some of our men to come down that would like to put their hands upon Chris. Um, We're going to pray over him, and then we'll be dismissed. So any of our guys that want to come down, Um, just to surround him and show support for him. And then I'll lead us in prayer. God, we thank you so much for Chris and for just the tremendous example he is of us, for us. God, we thank you for the timeliness of even today being able to send him out in the context of this sermon, that truth is so important, that it's those who understand truth that will be standing on Mount Zion at the end of time. God, I thank you that Chris has answered the call to follow the lamb wherever he leads him. God, I thank you that Chris has has not loved comfort. He's not loved family. He's not loved friends. He's not loved work. He's not loved any of those things more than the call you've placed upon his life. God, I'm thankful that he is going into dark areas where falsehood and deceit, deception and lies are rampant people who have taken you and have distorted you like an antichrist and have preached a false message. God, I pray that you would go with Chris as he leaves, that you would watch over and protect him and keep him safe, not for his own personal comfort, but to keep his ministry going over there. God, we want his voice to continue to go out. Father, I pray that you'd watch over him physically and give him the strength and energy that he needs. We recognize that in, in similar ways that you gave Paul things to, to keep him humble, perhaps you've given Chris some of the health challenges that he's faced for his own good, for those type of purposes. God, we recognize that you've given it to him. And, and God, I thank you for Chris's perspective that, that those things have been good in his life to get him to where he's at today. But God, I pray that you would guard and protect him physically with the pain and discomfort. God, we thank you for the successful surgery. We know more needs to happen in the future. And so God, I pray for the, the perfect timing for all of that 
as he gets reports back and begins to develop a game plan for how to attack other issues with his body. God, I pray that you'd give doctors wisdom and knowing exactly how to plan that out. Father, I pray that you would go forth with him as he has the opportunity to teach. Father, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to go ahead of him and prepare those hearts to to be able to see through some of the deception that maybe has been believed up to this point. You'd give him clarity in his speech, that he'd be able to communicate the truth of your word in a clear way that illuminates the hearts of these Ugandans to see the goodness of Jesus in ways that has been distorted previously to them. God, help him to receive the the pure gospel from Chris and that you would you would save souls through his ministry this, this year, that you would um, allow others that are already saved to grow and to be strengthened in their faith. God, help him to communicate the, the coming truths that, man, antichrists are going to continue to come. False teachers are going to continue to come. Help him to see that he gets to play a role in preparing the Ugandans to stand firm, to stand confidently, to sing victoriously because of the truth they believed. God, we thank you for the chance to partner with him. I pray that you would allow him again to be safe in his travels today and to get acclimated very quickly in the home that you've called him to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.